If you brought your Bible tonight, and I hope that you have, turn with me, first of all, to the book of James. James chapter 1. Now, you might want to uh, find uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and put your finger in there or mark it somehow with a bookmark or the ribbon in your Bible or whatever uh, but where you can quickly turn to it because we're going to go there here in a minute. Um, I'll explain to you why. Whenever I first got saved, actually... The night, now I was not raised in church. I did not have much church background or history. Uh, I had one brief summer, well, it was a little longer than that, but a few months where I went to church as a teenager. I was way more concerned about the girl that I sat next to and held her hand than anything else that took place there, just to be completely honest with you. But anyways, so whenever I got saved, actually the night that I got saved, God called me to preach. I did not understand what he, what God was calling me to do. I, I didn't understand at all. I didn't understand a call to preach. I didn't even know that that's how that worked, okay? I, I, I guess, I never give any thought, but I guess you just decided one day you wanted to be a preacher, and that's how that worked. I did not know, understand a divine call. I And, and to be honest with you, even that night, I told Jennifer when we got home, God wants me to do something special. Didn't know what it was. I didn't understand what it was. And, uh, but anyways, as time went on, God <coughs> revealed to me what that was and what that meant and what he wanted me to do. So my pastor at that time was the only preacher that I knew, the only one that I had listened to. Um, so as you can imagine, my modeling of what preaching is was basically to replicate, in a sense, in my own way, but to do what he did. And he was a preacher, one of these preachers. I say that like it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. But he was the kind of preacher that had a lot of personal life experience. He was older before he got saved. And he illustrated all of his sermons, or pretty much all of his sermons, with some story from his life. To me, I thought, I, it wor I lost sleep at night. It worried me. How am I going to, I'm a young man. I've just been married. My kids are one and two years old. I got, you know, I, I, that means that I've got about five sermons and I'm done, you know. What am I going to do? <laughs> and so anyways, it bothered me. It bothered me a lot. And then one day, God showed me something. Every spiritual truth that is in the New Testament, which I'm going to read to you, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Every spiritual truth that he teaches us in the New Testament, if I've got a story to illustrate it, great, that's bonus. But I don't need a story to illustrate it. God has got his own in the Old Testament. There is nothing taught in the New Testament that is not physically illustrated in the Old Testament. It gave me so much liberty when God opened my eyes and showed me that. Uh, and so anyways, and that much more reason to dig in. So that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to read to you a spiritual truth that we need and we need to know and we need to understand here in the New Testament. 
And then I'm going to go to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 11, to illustrate it to you. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings. We thank you, Lord, for... Uh, our church, our church family, for everyone who uh, has made an effort to come out to worship you in spirit and truth tonight. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the building that you've given us, the roof you put over our heads here tonight, the wonderful place to, to come and to gather and beautiful sanctuary to worship you in. We thank you, Lord, as I mentioned this morning, for the nation that we live in, the freedom we have to gather here without fear of persecution of any sort. We thank you, Lord, so much for all of the men and women who have sacrificed, who have fought, who have bled, and who have died. For our veterans who sacrificed so much so that we could have this freedom here tonight. But Lord, we know that ultimately, because all good gifts come from you, that it is a gift from you. So we give you the praise and the glory here tonight. Lord, we're thankful to have another day to serve you. We're thankful for every breath that we draw. But we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. God, that you sent him and give him so that we might have life and have that life eternally and abundantly. God, we're not worthy. We don't deserve it. We can't do enough to repay you. We can't even thank you enough for what you've done for us. But Lord, let us always, always, always be a people with praise and glory on our lips for you because you alone are worthy of it. And God, I pray as we go forward into this part of the service that you would continue to have, a, a, there would continue to just be a spirit and an atmosphere of worship here, that we would continue to stay in a worshipful state. Lord, that we would keep our focus, our eyes uh, on you, attentive to you and your word tonight. I pray, Lord, that we would have hearts uh, to receive your word, ears to hear what you would say by your spirit tonight, uh, just as James says, that we wouldn't be in your word that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word. God, I pray tonight, Lord, that we would leave here uh, different than how we come in, changed by your word, by the moving of your spirit, by, the, wor by your, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives here tonight. God, I'm asking for you to show up in this service and do what only you can do, and we'll be sure and give you all the glory for it. And Lord, if there's any among us that doesn't know you, any that are backslidden, any that are lost, whatever the case may be. Maybe they've just grown cold. God, let today be the day that they would repent, come back to you, get things right with you, give their heart to you. Uh, Lord, that the fires be kindled again within them before it's everlasting too late. So God, just have your way and your will. Help me get out of the way. Help all of us to, get a, to just get ourselves out of the way so that you can be God of this service. And Lord, let me ask one more thing. I need your help tonight. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't quicken my mind and clear all the junk and clutter out of the way and place on my tongue the words you'd have me to say, 
if you don't do that, Lord, I've got nothing to say. Lord, I desire to say nothing but what you want me to say tonight. So, Lord, I'm just asking that you'd use me as your vessel tonight to deliver your message, your word, in a way that pleases you and brings you glory. And God will give you all the glory because you alone are worthy of it. You alone deserve it. Lord, we love you tonight. Pour your spirit out upon us, Lord. Uh, uh, Lord, your holy unction, your anointing, Lord, is what I'm asking for tonight. God, and we'll give you the glory. We love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the Bible teaches us that there is pleasure in sin for a season, right? That means for a little while, a momentary high. But what about after that? What about after that season, after that little while, after that momentarily, momentary high? What happens after that? Well, the world that we live in today would have you to believe that nothing. You're set up to, have, to experience a little more pleasure, right? Indulge in your sin a little bit more, experience a little more pleasure, right? The world would tell us, right? The question is what happens after the high is gone, after the pleasure is ended, right? The world tells us that there's no consequences, but the Bible tells us the opposite of that, that there is consequences and there is lifelong consequences to our sin. You know, I can remember years ago a young lady struggling with the um, account of the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after they'd come out of Egypt before they entered into the promised land. They wander in the wilderness because of their disbelief, right? Because of their sin, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation dies there, does not get to enter into the promised land. I remember a young lady struggling with that thought she thought if they you know they repented why couldn't they just go in and she was taking that and equating that to does that mean that they all went to hell couldn't they all couldn't individually they repent they love god they follow god and go to heaven what she was missing was the story is not a story about personal salvation but it's consequences Consequences to not trusting God. Consequences to not believing God. Consequences to not obeying God. There's consequences for the decisions that we make. You know, the saying goes, and, and we've heard it said many times, sin will take you further than you ever intended to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and will cost you more than you can pay. When I think about that, I think what the, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is he, his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Right? That's verse 1. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying God's hand is not so short. He's not so weak, but he cannot reach down and save you. He cannot reach down. Uh, you know, it's not that his hand is so short that it's beyond his power and his ability to pull you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon the solid rock. He has not gotten old and dull of hearing where he cannot hear you when you cry out. But then it goes on to say, but your iniquities. Right? That's your sins. But your iniquities have separated between you 
and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you. Not that he cannot hear, but that he will not hear. Our sin drives a wedge between us and between God. A wedge that if you will will allow it to continue to come between you and God, will finally completely, totally separate you from God. That's how it works. Um, I didn't intend on telling any personal stories, but I I guess I do got one I need to tell. Whenever I was growing up, living at home, The, the old farmhouse that we lived in, it, it was the farmhouse that my grandparents had lived in. Multiple generations of, of my family had lived there on that farm in the old farmhouse. Not, a, not an ounce of insulation in the thing anywhere. That's just the way it was. Dad used to jokingly say that you could throw a cat through the cracks in the wall. Wasn't quite that bad. But, you know, it, it was not a warm house, okay, in that sense. If, it's warm, if the house was warm, there's a big fire built. And so anyways, we had one of them old, I, just call, I don't know what they're really called, but sheet metal uh, furnaces down in the basement. And man, that thing burned a lot of wood. I mean, burned a lot of wood. You're sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, no, I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. That thing, there was something wrong with it, okay? It burned a lot of wood. That's what we did every weekend, all, but from before winter through most of winter, we cut wood. We fed that old wood stove. You know how you are as a kid. You, you want to do something until you're big enough to do it, and then you're like, wish you don't know what you were thinking, why? Well, anyways, I got big enough to split wood. So that become, I mean, not only did I go and help Dad cut wood, load wood, bring it to the house, carry it downstairs, stack it in the basement, all that. On top of that, once I got big enough, my job come completely to splitting wood. And I got pretty good at, at splitting wood. And as a matter of fact, Dad was impressed with it, and I guess it was his way of complimenting me. But he began to tell everybody that he'd gotten a new wood splitter. You know what everybody, I mean, his friends would start asking him questions and people they were thinking that he, that he got him a nice, one of them nice big hydraulic wood splitters. No, it was me. I was the wood splitter. Nobody got the joke but, but him and, you know, he was laughing. I wasn't laughing. Dad's big thing, you know, because there's always some sticks of wood that's pretty hard to split. And, I, and I'm young, I, you know, I'm still growing and, you know, just, just strong enough to really swing that mallet and bust wood. And there's some sticks of wood that give me problems. Dad's always like, he, he called it the checks. I don't know what you call it, but that's what I was taught. He's always, now, son, look at the checks, and, and you know, and that's how you need, to, you need to line up them checks and hit it. That's what he was always saying. And that would help, and they would steal a few, and then he'd say, well, those, you just leave them, you just leave them laying you know, upright, they, the rain, get full of water, and then you catch them frozen. He said, then, boy, they'll just pop right open. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. I mean, there are some sticks of wood that I just about just sawed that thing in two with a splitting maul trying to bust it, you know. And my grandpa come over one day and saw me out there, and he said, boy, 
Ain't you got no wedges? I didn't even know what he was talking about. Wedges? What's that? He said, I'll, I'll get you. He said, I'll bring you some wedges. He said, I got some at the house. I'll give to you. So next time, he brought me a set of wedges. And he showed me how to use a set of wedges. Listen to me. They ain't a stick of wood. I never come across a stick of wood that I couldn't bust with a set of wedges. It makes all the difference in the world. It is unbelievable what you can do with a set of wedges. I have no idea why Dad never informed me about this great invention, wedges. I envision him sitting in the house having a good chuckle over a cup of coffee at me. I don't know, but anyways, that's the way it went. Them wedges. That's exactly what sin is. And I don't care how tight you think you are with God how strong you think you're connected with him, it ain't nothing that a good wedge won't bust, won't bust apart. You let that sin and keep driving it down in there and let it continue to come between you and God, it will separate you from God. Guarantee it every single time. As we look at this and look at this, what the scripture is telling us here today. The verses I quoted to you from Isaiah make it clear to us that sin is what keeps us from God. Sin is the reason that he hides his face from us. Sin is the reason that he will not hear our prayer. Not that he cannot, but will not, refuses to hear our prayer. Right? Our sins is what stops God from blessing us. Our sins is what breaks our fellowship with God. Now I said, turn back to, uh, put your finger in 2 Samuel. I want you to turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to read to you a few verses from 2 Samuel chapter 11. About David, a man after God's own heart. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 begins. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when the kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon, and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an, evening, in an evening time that David arose from off of his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. And she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Have you ever examined the life of David? David went from the man who, the young boy really, who 
Samuel had anointed as king, who had went out and showed the faith to take on the mighty Goliath when he was still but yet a youth, right? The scripture tells us here, it describes this giant of a man, fully armed and clothed, a man of war from his youth, and here's David but a youth. And David goes out and he kills him. Not with, not with weapons of war, but with the same weapons that he had used guarding his father's sheep from wolves and bears and predators and things like that. A single old flat stone and a slingshot. We think of a slingshot today as a, as a child's toy. But yet David uses that to kill the, to kill the mighty Goliath. David... A man, when uh, they talk about, if I remember it correctly, Saul had killed his hundreds, David his thousands. David, a man after God's own heart, God had protected. David, right, the man that God had made the promise that it would be of his lineage, right, uh, that he would establish his throne forever, that one day the Messiah would come and he would be a descendant of David and sit on the throne of David forever. And then we look at the latter part of David's life. And it's a mess. It is absolutely a mess. His children, uh, they're killing each other. Uh, one is trying to overthrow him. I mean, it is just absolutely a mess. What happened? Have you ever wondered where is the point where things turn? For David. Where is it that it started going the wrong direction? Well, I will give you a hint. No, I won't give you a hint. I'll just tell you. It's here in the scriptures that we read tonight. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's it. I will argue with you that it took place before that. You'll say, oh, yes, he's looked upon her and he lusted after her in his heart before Yes, that's true. But really, it happened even before that. Look at verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. At the time of the year when all the other kings went out and led their people in battle. God had anointed him, appointed him, established him as king, given him that job, that duty, that responsibility, that calling. David was not fulfilling it. David was not doing the job that God had given him. He should have been out there with he, he, he should have been out there with the troops. He should have been leading the nation of Israel as they went out to war and they went out to battle. But instead, he sends Joab. And he stays back at the house. 
Oh, he probably thought, you know, I've been a man of war. I've shed too much blood. I'm getting older, right? I'll guarantee he was thinking that. I don't get up around. War is a young man's game. Uh, You know, maybe I'd do better just to stay back here at the house. Because David was not doing the job that God had given him. He was exposed to a temptation that he shouldn't have been. James 4.17 tells us, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. David knew what he was supposed to be doing. He knew what God wanted him to do, and he didn't do it. And you know what? That makes it sin. That's where this thing started. He was supposed to be out there with his army. James 4, 7 tells us to submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's, let's walk through this thing. Let's see what happens here. Mistake number one. Or should I say sin number one. Was neglecting his God-given duty. And not leading his army to battle. Can I just stop for pause for a moment and ask you what is it God has asked you to do? And are you doing it? What has God asked you to do? And are you doing it? Mistake or sin number two. That was the lust. David was supposed to be out there with the army, but instead he was on the rooftop watching Bathsheba Take a bath. Now we could, we, we could church that up a little bit and make it sound not quite so bad and we could add in all kinds of excuses and things there but the, true, the bottom line is is when he should have been out in the field with Bathsheba's husband, should have been out there with Joab, should have been out there with the other men. He was at home watching Bathsheba take a bath. Mistake or sin number three. Acting upon that lust. Actually physically committing adultery. David slept with Bathsheba. Now, let let me pause here just a minute. We're not done with David's sins by any means. But I didn't read to you everything. We probably need to read all of chapter 11, chapter 12. What happens is he sleeps with her, right? He thinks it's going to be a one-night stand. He thinks that he can have his way with her, send her back home, and it's like nobody knows the better. Well, your sins have got a way of finding you out, right? Uh, you might think that you can sweep them under the rug, cover them up, hide them, but it don't work. Never works. Sends her home. She sends word back to him. I am with child. She's pregnant. Her husband has been gone, right? There's no way that it's his. It's obvious, right? In that day and time, she'd been stoned to death for that. So David says, I'm king. i got a great plan. I can cover this up. I can do what I want, right? That's really what he's saying. I can do what I want. I can do what I want. I can cover this up. I can fix this. So he calls for Uriah to come in from the battlefield to personally give him a report 
of the battle. See, what he's thinking is, is Uriah's been gone from his wife for a while. He's been gone from home for a while, right? He's thinking that Uriah will come in, talk, give him a report of what's been going on, how the battle's been going, and then go home for the night, enjoy the company of his wife, and then go back to the battlefield. And then, much later, when he comes home from war, surprise, you got a new baby on the way. That's David's plan. It works perfectly, too. End of story. No. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It works about as good as Adam and Eve's plan to cover up their sin with fig leaves. Uriah comes, gives him a report, and he dismisses him. He finds out the next morning that Uriah didn't go home. Uriah stayed with the servants. Slept in the bunkhouse. David calls him and says, what are you doing? Why didn't you go home? Uriah's a better man than David is. Uriah says, how in the world, when Joab and my, and my brethren are out there sleeping in tents, how can I go home and enjoy the company of my wife and a good meal in my home? There's no way I could do that, David, and feel right about it. David, I can see him just, you know... He says, all right, still ain't over yet. I can still beat this. I can still fix it. I'll get him drunk. He won't be so noble then. So David gets him drunk, and he thinks. You know, he'd sent a big feast over there and everything, you know, the night before. He thinks, I'll get, you know, he said, we'll eat, we'll feast, I'll get him drunk. And then he won't have his wits about him. Then he'll do it. Even drunk, Uriah, at least at this point in this regard, is a better man than David. Uriah won't go. He sleeps with the servants again. So David says, I can still cover this thing up. He write, Joab is his man. Joab will do whatever David asks, no questions about it. Whatever it is. So, David writes a little note. He says, Uriah, I've got a message I want you to take back. Very important. You take back to the battlefield and deliver to the commander, deliver to Joab. He writes in the note, Uriah the Hittite, I want you, when the battle gets hot, I want you to put him right in the middle of it. And when it's at its highest Peak, whatever the right word is for that. When it's the oddest, pull back from him. Right, it's a guarantee for him to get killed in battle. Uriah carries his own death sentence with him. Unknowingly, unwittingly, carries his own death sentence with him back to Joab. Joab was exactly the man I described to you a minute ago. Joab done it. No questions, no doubt. Uriah was one of David's mighty 30 warriors that are named and listed by name. And David's willing to kill him to cover up his own sin. 
So, it happens. It, it, look, Joab pulls it off pretty much perfectly. I don't know, if you read that and you read that closely, I don't know if Joab had planned it that well or he just saw a golden opportunity. He knew what David wanted done and he saw a golden opportunity and he, took, and he made use of it. Either way, Uriah is, is killed in battle. He sends word back to David, letting David know what had happened. Bathsheba gets word her husband is dead. She takes the appropriate, the standard amount of time of mourning in that day and time and mourns the loss of her husband. And then David marries her. Finally, cost a good man his life, but David's sin is covered up. Nobody will be the wiser and know any different. Forgot about one person. God knew. God knew. And God's not going to just let this go. So, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. He tells David this heart-wrenching story about this. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. The rich man's got all kinds of wealth and flocks and flocks and lots of, you know, livestock, everything. The poor man has one little ewe, right, one little sheep. He raises it in his own home like it's one of his own children. Matter of fact, Scripture says daughter. And when the rich man has a visitor come, because that was the custom that day. If you've got a visitor come, you make a big meal for them and you treat them well and have kind of a feast and that kind of stuff. The rich man takes that poor man's little yule that he had raised like one of his own children, slept in his home with him, and he slaughters it to have their feast, to have their... David is angry. He's like, that guy will pay. He will pay fourfold for what he does. And Nathan the prophet says, you are the man. You are the man. You thought it was hidden, but God knew what you did with Bathsheba. God knew how you had an innocent man like Uriah killed to cover your own sin. God knew, and you have pronounced judgment on yourself. And right there, right there, we see why David is a man after God's own heart. Go there in chapter 12 and read it later this evening or, or in the morning for your devotion or whatever. Go there and, and read it. You will see, and, and put it with Psalms 51, because that's David's psalm of repentance. And you'll see why David was a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect, not because he was sinless, not because he always made the right decisions. He, none of those are true about him but because of his, the heart of repentance that he had. He did not, when confronted with his sin, he did not do what probably most of us would do, and that's minimize it, make excuses, you know, try to all, shrug it off, all those things. No. He fessed up to it, he owned up to it, and yes. He repented of his sins right there. He admitted it, he owned up to it, and he repented of it. But you know what? And because of that, God spared David. 
right? He, that God had every right to take David's life there and then, but he didn't. He spared him because of it. But you know what? There's still consequences to the sin. There's still consequences to your sin that David paid for for the rest of his life. All right? So I had gotten to sin number four. Sin number four is lies and deception. David lied to Uriah. David tried to trick uh, Uriah. And I mentioned Uriah here. David, Uriah is no stranger. David's no stranger to Uriah, right? Uriah was one of David's best soldiers. He's listed in the Bible as one of David's 30 mighty men. And then the final sin in this sequence of sins here was sin number five. That was the conspiring to murder Uriah. David had him murdered. And I don't know if you thought about this as, as I was telling you the story, but he makes Joab a co-conspirator in all of this. And if you read and study Joab, it's a slippery slope from this point forward in his life as well. What am I trying to say tonight? I'm trying to tell you sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay then it will cost you more than you can pay. Listen to me. Your sins will come out. They will find you out. It never, it never ever seems to work out when you try to cover something up. You end up, just like I pointed out, David's example here, uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, I think that's a perfect example. That, I think that is a physical illustration of what it looks like in the eyes of God when we try to cover our sin. It looks ridiculous. It would be like somebody walking in here tonight uh, dressed in fig leaves. Well, that's not fooling nobody. It's ridiculous. Can I share with you real quick before I close tonight? The results, the fruit of David's sins. First of all, a baby dies. I didn't even go on into that in the story, but Bathsheba, the baby that, that David had, uh, had uh, conceived with Bathsheba, the baby dies because of the sin. God takes it because of the sin. The baby was conceived in sin by David and Bathsheba, and because, I mean, they were making a mockery of God. He could not allow that to continue and this to be an heir to the throne. And so God takes the baby. The baby dies. Amnon, David's oldest son, actually rapes his half-sister Tamar. All of these things that I'm going to list off to you, this happens after this point. You go on and read this afterwards. David's third oldest son, uh, Absalom, he then kills his brother Amnon because of what he did, because he raped his sister. Absalom then later on decides to lead a rebellion against David and actually tries to kill David and publicly humiliates him. Then, remember the slippery slope of Joab, right? Joab, uh, the one who co-conspired with David to kill Uriah, carries it out. He is the one that ends up actually killing David's son, Absalom, after David specifically tells him, not to, right? Against David's wishes. And then Adonijah, I'm not saying that right, but it's David's fourth oldest son. He tries to make himself king. 
while David is still alive with Joab's help. This is at the end of David's life. And then Solomon, David's tenth oldest son, the future son of David and Bathsheba, he kills both Adonijah and Joab. David's life is never the same after 2 Samuel 11.1. That's the turning point. After that point, I told you the reason that David is considered a man after God's own heart is not because he lived a perfect life. It was not because he was some perfect person or he was some super holy man with a great family. It was because of how he reacted when he was confronted with his sin and how he repented. You can read about that, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Psalms 51. So what have I come to tell you tonight? What do I want to end and leave you with? We don't have to make the same mistakes David did. We do not have to sin. We do not have to continue to sin. Sin does not have to have control over us any longer. Right? It's been, the bondage of sins has been broken. We are now free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Oh, yes, the flesh desires to sin, and we choose to sin sometimes, but you do not any longer have to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 tells us, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, uh, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God and uh, yourselves members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. I tell you tonight, we must reject sin in every way, in every capacity. Stop letting it into your life. Stop letting it in, uh, to, into your mind and into your soul uh, through the things that you watch, the things that you listen to. You don't have to put up with sin. You don't have to endure sin, right? We are comfortable, as, as a people, we're comfortable with sin because we've been... Uh, We've been lying with it for so long, right? I'm telling you, we can reject sin. We can reject a sinful lifestyle. We must not allow it to enter our lives any longer because it no longer has any place in our lives. If we allow it in, it will destroy us. If we allow it in, not only will it destroy us, but it will destroy our family. Listen to me. Our sins, the old lie that goes around, I've heard it all my life. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. I can decide, right? That's the excuse for um, us to be able to just do whatever we want is I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Listen to me. It does not affect just us. It also affects our children and our children's children. If you don't believe me, you, you come talk to me after the service. My parents' sins, not only have they affected me my entire life from that point forward, but they affect my children's lives. And maybe it'll go on to their children as well. Its effects are lasting and devastating. But why? Why would you dabble with it? Why would you give it place in your life? 
Why would you let it in the in in to your homes? Why do we leave the door cracked for it? God has given us the victory over sin through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm begging you, stop it now. Stop If you're dabbling in sin, stop it. If you're thinking and dwelling on sin, stop it. Uh, one of the greatest and worst things of our time is that little device you're carrying in your pocket. Right? Uh, it can be very great and it can be very fantastic, right? There is so much information that's at our fingertips and it makes us so much more accessible to the world and to knowledge and to information and, and to be able to contact our loved ones and, and so on and so forth. But it also can be a portal right into hell. It can be a portal into Satan, into his, his ways and his tactics. It is a great, it is what a friend of mine used to always call a snake hole. It's a great way for the snake to get into your life. If that's your problem, the Bible tells us that we would be better off if our eye is causing us to sin, to pluck it out. Uh, if our hand is causing us to sin, to cut it off. What it's trying to say is if that is your temptation that you cannot resist, then you're better off without it than to have it and spend an eternity in hell. Because if that is the source of sin in your life, it could be the television, it could be the internet, it could be, it could be a person, it could be so many things, whatever it is, that's that wedge I was talking about earlier. If you don't remove that wedge out, the old devil's just going to keep driving her in. He's better at busting wood than I am. That wedge will separate you eternally from God. Whatever it is, it ain't worth it. It ain't worth it. Would you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come tonight. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come tonight? If you've got a need, if you've got a burden, would you come tonight? Don't miss this opportunity. You might not get another one. We never know when our last moment, when our last day, when we'll draw our last breath will be. So would you please come tonight? Uh, maybe you've got a burden for somebody. Well, come on and pray for them. Whatever it is, would you come tonight? Would you come?